What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. Folks, I am really honored today to have James Borders with me. I was just telling him, I think that his story is like a movie. It's, it maybe needs to be made into a movie. Um, the best way I can describe James Borders' story is it's gripping, it's inspiring, it shows determination, courage, faith. Um, James um, was a nonviolent, first-time defendant at 27 years old that was sentenced to life in prison. He finally made it home after 21 years, and his story of all the things that happened within that time period and before his prison and after, uh, it's, it's an inspiring story. James, welcome. So glad that you're with me today. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a blessing to be here with you. Well, I, I'm just glad you made the time to do it because I, I think this is a story that needs to be told, needs to be heard. Um, you had such a incredible life growing up as a kid. Can you tell us a little bit about your life as a kid growing up? Absolutely. So my life was normal to me. Yeah. Because everyone around me was pretty much in the same situation. Yeah until I got older and left. And that's when I noticed that my life wasn't normal. But before I left my town where I was born and raised, uh, tell me where that was, James, you, uh, I'm originally from Haytown, Missouri, a small little town, um, South of St. Louis, like three and a half hours, maybe four hours South of St. Louis. Uh, it was small. We had dirt roads, outhouses. Um, we didn't have running water. So we would, as a kid, we had to boil our water outside. Uh, that was, uh, again, that was normal to me. Normal to because, you. Yeah, it was normal to me. Um, and so I grew up, I'm the youngest son out of 16 children. Uh, my youngest sister, she's maybe three years younger than me but I am the youngest son and I'm now 50. And so my oldest sister is like 71, 72. Wow. And my mother is 89 and she still drives. She still goes to McDonald's and get, gets her coffee. And so that is a blessing. I love that. But yeah, it was so many of us and we didn't, we had to share everything, the clothes, uh, you didn't have leftovers uh, and you couldn't throw food away because we had, we needed everything. You just couldn't throw nothing away. And my mother, she used to make quilts and, and blankets for us. And we had gardens that we, we had like two or three gardens that we had to uh, deal with as a kid while other little children are playing. We had to pick tomatoes and plant peas. And 
as a kid. So but your again, mom, was, so your mom, James, did she keep everybody in line? Was it, tell oh, me a little bit about this woman who has 16 kids. Absolutely. My mother was firm. Yeah. My mother was firm and my father put her in a bad situation. My father was, <clears throat> my father, he was abusive. Um, he used to drink a lot. Yeah. I didn't know him because I was a year old when he died, but my older siblings told me a lot about him. Cause they experienced and, that. Yes. Yeah. And so my mother, she was very firm. She wasn't sensitive. And so being raised around a mother that wasn't sensitive and didn't show love, that's how you became. Right. And so that affected me as a father. Right. Because I didn't get that type of sensitivity that I needed as a child. I didn't get the hugs and the kisses right. as a child. Yeah. Because of the condition that my father or the situation that my father put my mother in. And so my mother, she was firm. She was no nonsense. We all had chores. We had to, she taught us how to cook, taught us how to clean, taught us how to sew. She wanted us to be uh, independent. Yeah. She didn't want us to depend on no one. And as a child, I grew up, we chopped cotton for $20 a day in the hundred degree temperature. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of it, the money went towards our school clothes. And so, um, <clears throat> excuse me. So it was pretty rough. So tell me a little bit about school. You, you've, you went to elementary, graduated high school. What, what, what all was James doing in those years? Well, well, I like other little children, my school was normal again. Yeah. Um, I was into sports. Yeah. I didn't have a father figure in my life. And so I looked towards my older brothers for guidance. Okay. And so if they if they were guiding me down the wrong path, then that's so be it. That's where I was going. Mm -hmm. And so um I guess my it was it was okay. It wasn't bad. Um I didn't have anyone to really push me because my mother, she didn't graduate. My mother, she stopped going to school in the fifth grade. Uh, because she had to chop cotton and she had to uh, she had to do whatever she needed to do um, at that time because her mother had them in the fields and doing little odd jobs and and that's my mother she just didn't have a lot of education right and so me growing up I just didn't see the importance of being educated because of the environment in which I grew up in. But I now know that education is very, very important. So you end up, um, you get up getting out of high school. You said you played some basketball, did some wrestling, kind of played around and, and yeah. got into the sports scene. Out of high school, where did you go? What'd you do? Well, so when I graduated high school, I moved to Kansas city. I couldn't deal with Kansas city because it was too big. It was too fast and I didn't like it. So I moved back home. Okay. And I ended up going to a Votech school and I had got my welding certificate in welding and I had a job welding, but I quit 
again, I didn't have anyone in my corner to really help me out. Mm-hmm. My mother couldn't raise, my mother did the best that she could do. Right. Because you need a two-parent home. Children need that. Right. Because the father can offer a child something that the mother can't. Right. And the mother can offer a child something that the father can't. And so you need, I think it's important for a child or children to be raised up in a two-parent home. But my mother, she still did a good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she did a good job. I just chose to get off the path that she put me on. <laughs> okay, well, I want to explore that a little bit, James, because you, you, obviously, we've talked about your mom. She was, she was a good lady, and, and she wanted the best for her kids. How did you, when you started getting with the wrong crowd, did it did it feel like you were with the wrong crowd? Did you did you feel like this isn't where I'm supposed to be, but I'm going this way? What 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 got you there? In the beginning, it felt like I was with the wrong crowd because of how I was raised. I was raised into church. We knew about God, but as I got older, that's when I stopped going to church. And so the crowd that I hung around, these guys were my friends in high school. And so we just pretty much did what we had to do. There were no jobs where I was from, probably had one factory in my little town and you really couldn't get a job because you just didn't quit that job because you didn't have nothing else to go to. Right. But there were other jobs in surrounding little towns, but there you really didn't have a lot of opportunities. So you had to create opportunities if you will. Yeah. And if I remember on our on our pre-interview talk, we were talking about you had uh, twin boys at some point uh, in your early 20s? Absolutely. I was 23 years old, uh, and I had my wife at the time. We both had twins. We had twins together. And when I got arrested, I, I, I when I got arrested, they were five years old. So when I got out of prison, they were grown men. Wow. So there was a lot that I missed. And there was a lot that they missed. Sure. And so there was, I couldn't raise them because their mother had already raised them to be how she wanted them to be. Right. Right. So me getting out of prison saying, Hey, this is how it should be. That was, they're not, they were listening to me, but she had already had it. So you stayed in contact with them, but you obviously weren't able to raise them. Right. That's, that's almost an impossibility when you're, when you're behind the walls. So James, lead me into what, when, when everything went bad, tell, roll that out for everybody. What happened? So I believe it was 1998 when I first got arrested because of some guys I knew Mm -hmm. and I got out because they didn't have anything on me because it wasn't my deal. Mm -hmm. It was theirs. And so it's very important to watch out who you hang around. Yes. Because just even though you're not doing what they're doing, you still can go to prison. Right. It's called conspiracy. Right. And that was my charge. Conspiracy. You don't need no evidence, just hearsay. And they will convict you on conspiracy right and conspiracy consists of two or more people conspiring to break the law right and so 
I got arrested, but when I I got out, I moved away. Where'd you move I moved to? to Georgia. Okay. This I moved to Georgia. Okay. From Georgia back to Kansas City. Okay. So I met my wife now. We were married maybe a month. The feds came mm. to get me. She was pregnant. And it was rough because I didn't see this coming. And so to make a long story short, the feds arrested me. They took me back down to the boot hill. The the jury had a a trial, four-day trial. They found me guilty, gave me a life sentence. My wife had a miscarriage. Mm. Three years into my incarceration, she and I divorced. All right, I want to black up a little bit, James, because obviously you might not have had good representation in that situation. A first-time drug defendant, nonviolent, you got life in prison. Um, you, when you got life in prison, where did you go? Um, I believe you probably went to the county jail, correct? Correct. I went to Perryville outside of St. Louis, outside of Cape Girardeau, Mm -hmm. Missouri. And you mentioned about representation. My representation was horrible. These lawyers Defense attorneys, they go to school to defend you. But in the courtroom, they're prosecuting you. Yeah. But you're the only one that don't know that they're prosecuting you because you don't know the law. And so I was given a life sentence. No drugs, no nothing. First-time offender, no criminal history. First time ever being locked up. And the judge gave me a life sentence. Okay, so you go to county jail. I went to yeah. county jail for six days, and it felt like six years. You went there for 11 months. Tell me about... Mike, that was the worst time ever, being in a county jail, because you can find you can't move. Right. And so in, in some county jails, you can't even go outside. To me, to me, James, it felt like that um, I was at Warrington County Jail, and it was kind of like a... It was like one of those things for like just a pickup. They picked up everybody and swarmed them into these pods. But just like you said, you didn't go outside. Um, You were confined. And to me, I felt like the lowest of lowest of the dirt. Like I, I, if I could ever feel like I hit total rock bottom Mm -hmm. living in that environment. And I can't imagine living in it for 11 months. And and you lived in other places after that county jail, obviously, but correct. You say it's it was the worst. It was the worst because it was small. They put you in a cell with whoever they want to put you in a cell with. Uh, it was the food was horrible. They you're like stripped of your manhood. Yeah, you're no longer a man now. Yeah, you have no rights. The rights that you do have are so small or so minimal that you really can't do anything. And, and so I was there for 11 months. They were bouncing me around from county jail to county jail. That was terrible. And you just never know when you're going to leave. They'll just get you, wake you up at three or four in the morning and say, bunk and jump. Mm -hmm. 
You know nothing. That's the one thing you know, you know nothing. You know nothing. Yeah. And so I didn't mention about Oklahoma. Okay. Oklahoma City, man, that was terrible because. You, you might explain play. that, James, too, because Oklahoma City is the big transfer center of the United States for federal inmate prisoners. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. And so you around everybody in America in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and you, you just don't really know where you're going until you go meet with a counselor or something. But you're around all kinds of people from all walks of life. You're in a plane shackled up because I was on a plane scared, scared, scared because you're in the sky shackled up yeah. and you have two or three guys next to you shackled up. Mm-hmm. And when you go to the restroom, you got to figure out how to use the restroom because you are shackled up. <laughs> yeah. And for those for those who've never been shackled up, you're, you're at your waist, you're in your uh, wrist or at your waist and yep. you've got a chain that drops down and you're shackled to your uh, ankles. And there's, uh, it's hard to walk too. I mean, right. you have to shuffle and it's, it's a, uh, it's a very dehumanizing experience. You feel like uh, an animal. I mean, I guess Absolutely. that's the best way to put it. You feel like an animal. Okay. So James, you, you, you get transferred out. You end up, um, I think in Greensville. Mm-hmm. Greenville, Illinois. And that's, that is a medium? Medium high. Yes, sir. Walk me through those gates. Okay. So when I first got there, it was, it was an experience, something that I never, ever want to go through again in my life. So when I first get there, there's a fight. And so they really don't fist fight in prison. That's like a rare thing. It's a lot of stabbing. They put locks in socks. Mm-hmm. They beat you with the lock or they make shanks and they just stick you. And so I witnessed that. Right when <laughs> you got there. Two. Yeah, I had just got there. Yeah. And we went on lockdown because of that. And so you're in a cell with a stranger. You have to learn this person and that person has to learn you. And you have to just stay out of the way and mind your own business. So I want to know, because I, I don't know that in, in this type of interview, most people aren't in conversations with somebody that got life in prison. Um, none of us usually run across somebody that we can talk to that can tell us how they felt and what their strategies were walking into a prison, knowing that that was going to be the rest of your life. What, mm-hmm. How does a guy handle that, James? How did you cope with that? Well, I had a lot of, I had a lot of things going on in my mind. Um, I was trying to deal with this new life. Mm -hmm. I was trying to deal with my wife Mm -hmm. who I left, who just had a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. I was trying to deal with that. I was trying to learn my case because my lawyers, they just really messed me around big time. They just wanted the money. Mm -hmm. That's it. And so I thought about suicide. I thought about just ending it yeah. because it was a lot of, it was a lot of, it was rough. It was a lot of pain, a lot of pressure. Uh, I was in a dark situation. I was in a dark place. Yeah. And so I just thought about just going ahead and just end my life. What, what brought you out of that? Cause obviously uh, all of us end up in that point. I know um, 
I even had that when I was uh, when I when I finally gave in and knew that I was going to plea. I thought my family would be better off without me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought Julie could get a fresh start. The kids could get a fresh start. And it's it's a it's kind of hard to explain because it's a slippery slope. Something hit me that night like a lightning bolt that oh my god, Brent, you don't think this way. You're the glass half full guy, not the half empty. This would be a terrible way for you to go out. What brought you back? What brought you back from that? Because I wasn't looking at life in prison. Right. So it was my faith in God that really, God was my anchor Mm -hmm. the entire time. But I lost my faith. Yeah. Because I couldn't see an end. Because I was now fouling motions myself. I wasn't following, but I paid a, these jailhouse lawyers. Right. There's a lot and of those. They, yeah, a lot of jailhouse lawyers, and a lot of them are smart. Yeah. And a lot of them are crooks. Right. So every motion I filed, they would shoot denying my motions. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't understand it because I had good issues. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I was in a hopeless situation. But God gave me hope throughout my incarceration. And I know the, ju- the the jury found me guilty of what my indictment said. But the prosecutor and the judge sentenced me beyond what the jury found me guilty of. So like you and I talked about yesterday, they stacked my charges. Right. And stacking your charges means you take one charge and you take it for multiple times and those carry 10 to 20 years and all of a sudden you're into hundreds of years. So it's, it's, absolutely it's a, it's an awful thing to look at. Very awful. And so there is no fairness. There's no fairness. The, the federal prosecutor runs the courtroom, not the district judge. And and I learned that from experience. So James, I, I'm curious, uh, walking into an environment of, uh, you know, a medium is not much different than a max. I mean, you got your right. scheduled moves every hour on the hour. You're, you're, you've got fights, you've got ugliness. Um, what's your strategies in there? How do you survive? So, so I had to learn how to do time. I had to learn how to live in prison amongst strangers. Right. And in the chow hall. You have to eat with your group. Mm -hmm. I had to eat with the Kansas City guys. Mm -hmm. Then you had the St. Louis guys. Then you had the Illinois guys. So you really just ate with your group. Mm -hmm. And if you got caught sitting in someone else's group or table, that was bad for you. Yeah. And you had to. Who taught you all that? Guys that were older guys that were from Kansas city that I, uh, got cool with. So you, you basically sought guys out that had been down for a while. Yes. Okay. And guys that was from Kansas city that I could relate to. Yeah. Because we had a lot to talk about. Right. In terms of where we were from. Yeah. And so I learned a lot through them. And then from when I started going to the chapel, which was the church in prison, mm-hmm. then I learned a lot from some of those guys also. I and think you know, it's interesting to talk about because, you know, uh, we're talking about prison and we're talking about reaching out to people who've been down for a long time and they, they really teach you how to get set up and, and teach you the rules of the inmate rules, how to survive. 
Interestingly enough, though, I think that, you know, when you get out and you look at just living everyday life, that's a smart technique. I think it's a good tip. You know, look yeah. for the people who are getting it right. Look for the people who seem to be getting along better than others and, and humble yourself and ask them, hey, what are you doing? Maybe I could put that in my life. Absolutely. And, you know, Brent, there were guys that used to go to the chapel or church with knives or shanks in their Bibles. <laughs> they cut a hole out because that's how serious it was. Or they would take the insole out of the boots and put a knife in the boots. You sitting in church or the chapel with a knife in your Bible or in your boot. Yeah, you know, they even did that, if you remember, James, they did that at Leavenworth, which, you know, we're at a camp, but they didn't do knives and, and Bibles, but they hid stuff in the chapel, contraband. Oh, yeah. They used yeah. the chapel as the safe space of, you know, not thinking it was going to get hit. And that's where a lot of things that weren't supposed to be in prison were, were hidden. Yes. A lot of drugs, a lot of cell phones. Yeah, a lot of drugs and, and cell phones. Yeah, you had a lot of gangs. There were a lot of gang fights. A lot of guys were territorial. And you had a lot of shot callers. That's horrible to put a lot of shot callers in one area. Right. That's terrible. So did you ever get into any situation where you felt like that your life was in danger? Not so much in danger because I really didn't deal with a lot of people like that. If you were like a wayward individual, mm -hmm. I stayed away from you. Right. If you were trying to do the right thing and educate yourself and learn and get out, then that's who I dealt with yeah. or gravitated to. Um, so you were in Greenville and I think you were there for, if I'm not mistaken, nine and a half years. Yes. Okay. How did you get transferred and I believe you went to Inglewood. Yes, Colorado. How did that transfer happen? And what I mean, nobody likes to be transferred in prison because it's you you have this fear, they call it diesel therapy, where you can get lost in the system. You right. you know, somebody could say, Hey, get on this bus and you end up traveling around the United States and you never get set up. So how did you how did you get transferred? So in 2009, I think is when Bush, the son was president, the sentencing commission, they made amendments to the guidelines, which lowered our base offense level, I believe. Right. So that benefited me since I was a first time nonviolent offender with no criminal history, no violence. They lowered my sentence from life to 30 years but we had to petition the courts. They just didn't automatically do it. Okay. The courts appointed public defenders to file your 3582 motion. Okay. And there was a motion to modify your sentence. And so they reduced my sentence from life to 30 years. And that's how I transferred because my time your changed. Your time changed. And so that your yeah. custody level changed. So, yes. so you ended up, this would have been Inglewood at a low um, yeah. in Colorado. Mm -hmm. Was life different at Inglewood than at Greenville? It wasn't too much different because it still had the same individuals coming from those mediums to the lows. Right. And they still had the same attitude. Same. So it wasn't that much of a difference. It was smaller. Yeah. Because in Greenville, I was around about 1,500 people. Yeah. Inmates. Now in 
Inglewood, it was less people. Right. And so the building was so old, they didn't have heat. They had like those furnaces where hot water heats up the rooms because it was an old boys reformatory school or something back in the fifties or the forties or something. It was so old. We had to put cardboard boxes over the windows to keep the cold air from coming out. So if it was, if it was 20 degrees outside, it was 10 degrees inside, Yeah, man. We had to sleep in our coats, our hats, our boots. You didn't want to get up to use the restroom. You didn't want to take a shower because it was so cold. Yeah. And I, yeah, I don't know, James, I mean, that old schoolhouse that we lived in at Leavenworth was a lot like that. It was that. old too. Yeah. You know, you, the, uh, because they didn't turn the heat on until like middle of November. Right. And, um, of course we didn't have air conditioning, but the, uh, it, man, I, the, the cold to me was the worst, you know, going to bed with your coat on your stocking hat on, yep. you know, all bundled up. I mean, you, I don't know if I've ever felt as cold as I felt when you don't have any heat and you're just trying to bundle up. It's not, it's not a good way to go. It's not. But you, you, you made some friends there, uh, at, in Colorado. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. So I was locked up with Jeff Skilling. Mm-hmm. Enron? Jeff Skilling. Yeah. I think he was the CEO of Enron. Mm-hmm. I think super, super nice guy. So he and I, we talked. Um, there were some more guys there also that I ended up with in Leavenworth. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, there were a few guys that I really made friends with that was pretty cool. And and we talked a lot, hung out a lot, learned from each other. Skilling uh, wouldn't have been a bad guy to talk to for life skills business. Right, because he was smart. Yeah. Smart guy. guy. I've read a lot there. about him. Yeah, he was super, super smart. Yeah. And so Blagorovich ended up uh, coming to Inglewood, Colorado after me. Yeah, I wasn't there when he was there. Right. And so, yeah, it, was, it wasn't bad. There's was a lot of politics in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of shot callers in prison. Mm-hmm. And they had it good with some of the COs because a lot of the COs were dirty. Mm-hmm. Tell they me a little bring, bit about that. Oh man. They would bring drugs in for inmates. Of course they were getting paid so much money to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, they were bringing in cell phones, tobacco. One CO when I was in Greenville, he got caught doing that and they prosecuted and yeah. gave him some time. That's a federal crime. It's absolutely yeah. it's a federal crime. He was bringing in drugs, cell phones, and a lot of the female guards, they were having sex with the inmates. Mm-hmm. Used probably five to $600, $1,000 to have sex with them. Mm. Oh yeah. It was, it was rough. Circus. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So and, um, you spent, I think three years there, Colorado, Englewood, and then you get transferred again. Yes. Yeah, so, the Sentence Commission, again, made amendments to the guidelines, which affected me. And not just me, but a lot of mm-hmm. inmates. Mm-hmm. And so my custody, my time went from 30 years to 24. And so now I wanted to be close to home. So I put in for a transfer, and they transferred me mm-hmm. to Oakdale, Louisiana. 
but you have to go through Oklahoma, the transit center Mm -hmm. to get there Mm -hmm. because that's where you're on a plane, your feet never hit the ground, never hit the ground. And so you in a single file line with a lot of inmates, you get up on like this little box thing or whatever it is. And they take your shackles off your restraints and all that. And it was Hey, like you said, it, it was dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. You're in a room with a full of guys, you're in a room uh, full of guys with no clothes on and you have to squat and cough and the CO's looking up inside of you, man, it was so crazy and gross. Yeah. But I didn't talk about when I was in Greenville, how, uh, when I went to visit mm-hmm. my family, come up to see me, you, they strip search you going in and coming out. Mm-hmm. And I told my family, I said, you all just don't know what I had to go through to come to see y'all. You know, I had that happen to me one time uh, because it was a lot looser where we were at Leavenworth. Right. But sometimes you would get different guards. And right. um, I just finished up a really nice visit with my wife and kids and came in. And they, I noticed that they were pulling everybody off to the side. They were walking in. I thought, well, that's weird. They never done this before. But again... You never know when something's going to happen. Right. And that's what they did. They strip searched us down. Uh, and I was like, wow, you, I, you know what? I just never know when I'm here. I think I've got it figured out and I never know. Right. And it's just, it, it's a, it, it really humbles you to uh, think because I think some of that's psychological that they do that because they want you to know that you never know. That's right. But it, there's no feeling like that. You know, here you are feeling like a human being with your family and coming in, you get strip searched and you're like, wow, actually, this is where I am. Yeah, I, it's, I, it's a controlled thing. It's psychological. Um, upsetting. That life, it's, that life makes you really appreciate your family, yeah. your freedom, yeah. the, the small things. Well, you said that when you went to um, Louisiana, it was a hell show it was ugly it was ugly yeah i was now i was down south so i was around a lot of guys from the south louisiana mississippi alabama because if you're from the south they would try to keep you in the south right from the midwest they would try to keep you in the midwest excuse me but that's not the case all the time and if you get into some trouble and they transfer you, they're going to send you so far away from home. Right. Because it's a disciplinary transfer. Right. And so not only are you suffering, but your family is suffering because they can't come visit you. Right. Yeah. So being in, in Louisiana was, it was like the worst time for me of being locked up because of that mentality. This, that mentality was insane. Dangerous. Very dangerous. Cause that's all they talked about was killing shooting uh that's they nothing positive living conditions what were they like yeah in the summertime it was so cold you had to go outside just to warm up doing the control moves yeah i don't know why they had it like that but the living conditions were horrible better than uh better than colorado yeah but horrible horrible yeah food terrible you eat the food that you eat they can't give it to no one on the streets. It's so old. Yeah, and a lot of it's expired. <laughs> yeah. You get a good deal on that. <laughs> and that's what you eat. Yeah. Yeah. Every day. And I got used to eating that mess. <laughs> yeah. Well, you did it for a long time. You did it for 21 time. years. 
Yeah, and so when I said 21 years, I was in the federal system that included halfway house, home confinement, but I was still in federal custody. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, you. So I was recently released from uh, federal custody in March. There's no better feeling than that. You know, uh, that's a celebration day all over again when, when that is. happens. And, you know, I couldn't, when COVID hit, I couldn't go visit my mother. Mm. Man, the lady, my PO, would not let me leave to go visit my mother. Well, a lot of people don't understand, like, when you get out of prison and then you're on uh, probation, you have to ask for permission to leave a certain district. Like, for me, it was the Eastern District of Missouri. Right. Um, so you you can't just freely travel anywhere. You have to, uh, and it can be turned down. And so it's Absolutely. it's, it's uh, another thing of restrictions that you have to learn to live with. And it really humbles you to the fact that I'm not in prison. <laughs> Man, I still do feel still restrained. Right. It's, it's, it seemed like it's an extension of your sentence. Yeah. Because the your PO or your probation officer comes to your house, search your house, um, they want to know where you work. They come to your job. Right. And that scares people. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. They, yeah. You, you don't have no freedom. Right. Well, I, so, I want to talk about when you got transferred uh, from Louisiana, which was the hell hole. Uh, <laughs> I guess you're told that you're going to Leavenworth. Is that right? Well, how did they, you find out what, when you got on that Greyhound bus? What did they tell you? Okay, the driver didn't tell me. Okay. They told me at R&D. Okay. Now, they didn't, I don't know if they had R&D in Leavenworth or not. I'm not sure. But I think R&D they did. is yeah. like when you come in, they did have it? Yeah, they did. Okay, okay. you get processed then. Yeah. Then when you leave, you get processed right. out. Right, And so, yeah, they told me I was going to Leavenworth because they don't want you to call your family. Don't and know. Somewhere. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, meet me up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> because a lot of guys escape like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you so and you so, get put on a Greyhound bus. I'm assuming they gave you some money. They gave me $242. Wow. I still got my ticket. Okay. Part of the, like the receipt. Yeah. I still got it. It was so crazy because I now have on street clothes. Yeah. I had on a white polo shirt, some blue jeans. And I'm like, wow, I haven't had this on since... 99 98 so that how many years would that have been because this this would have been 2013 i think it was 2012 or 2013 yeah so that's a while right i had a little over 12 years in i can't imagine um i honestly can't imagine that many years and james you're you're getting on a greyhound bus and it had to feel like everything was moving fast man everything was moving so fast, I was constantly looking around and <laughs> thinking somebody gonna sneak up on me, and and people were just different. Did things look different? Everything was different. What 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 did you, like? What were you thinking? I mean, because I mean, from from ninety eight to two thousand thirteen, there's a lot of things that changed. I mean, cell phones. Um, there was no such was, thing that, as an iPhone in ninety eight. Uh, no, that scared me because okay, first my let me talk to you about my first experience ordering food. Okay. So now eating that prison food for so long, you want some, some street food. Absolutely. And so 
the there was a church's chicken close to the bus station. Yeah. So I went to church's chicken. I'm looking at the menu and I, I said, well, I want this. I want that. The lady said, do you want this? You want to add this? And so she was messing me up so bad. And I was already messed up anyway, because I don't know how to order this food. And so I said, well, listen, ma'am, can you order this for me? Because I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to order food. And so she started smiling. And so she ordered my food and I said, yeah, that's, that's what I want. Grabbed my food, went to the bus. I'm eating real fast because you have to eat fast. You're eating fast because that's the way you've been trained. <laughs> right, right. I was trained to eat fast. you got to make the move to fast. get out of there. Exactly. Absolutely. And so I see this lady on the bus with a cell phone mm-hmm. and she's swiping and moving. And I'm like, what, what is she doing? <laughs> I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Yeah. And then when I went to a restroom, the toilets, they flushed by themselves. <laughs> hey, listen, and I don't want to get too technical and I'm not trying to be gross, but I had to use the restroom. And so when I got up, the toilet flushed. I took off. <laughs> I didn't run out of the restroom, but I ran to the door and I looked back. I said, man, it flushed on its own. And so when I went to get some soap, it came out on its own. Oh, the nice. water came out. Of, I'm like, what is this? Because before I got arrested, you you flushing yourself, you turning the water on, you're getting your own. So this stuff is coming out on its own. Yeah. I thought I was in a twilight zone or something. I couldn't wait to tell my family. So, you know, <laughs> that's so funny, though. But, but you know what I was thinking, James? You've gone through so many years now. I mean, to me... I mean, you, I mean, you talk about your faith and, and talk about saying, you know, determined and trying to stay on the right path and being with the right people. Did, did you feel like um, all those years that are going by, how did you start to feel as a person who was, that was your life living in prison? I had, I got used to it and it wasn't, it was a process. Mm-hmm. Um. The further you went in, did the further you felt like you were farther away from society, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Which Perfectly. is a scary thing because I mean, we'll talk about this, but so you're, you're traveling to a camp. This is where you want to be. You're getting back to closer to home. Right. Um, you pull up to Leavenworth. Um, tell me about that. That was an experience because there was so much freedom there. I I thought something was wrong Mm -hmm. because I've never been at a camp. Mm -hmm. And so the freedom that I had, it was like scary because I didn't want to do too much because I was so programmed and so trained to do as little as possible. Mm -hmm. And your movements were so restricted in those lows and those medium, they were so restricted. And, And I was like, wow. But after being at a camp for so long, I just used to go outside and just sit and look and think and just see how people are moving around. I see people on cell phones. I see people smoking weed. I said, this is just like being on the streets. Because <laughs> they're doing everything. Right. Everything. And so it was, um, it was an experience for me because now I have to adapt to this way of living. Were there people at Leavenworth that you had seen or met at other places? Oh, absolutely. There was this one guy. You remember Moss? Yeah. Okay. So he and I was 
we were in Greenville together. Wow. In the early 2000s. Wow. And then when I transferred to Colorado, he was there. And so we ended up at Leavenworth together. <laughs> so so we, we, have, we had a lot of history. James, I want to go back to um, the situation with your wife. Okay. Because you guys got a, a divorce. I mean, you're looking at life in prison. And right. um, I think th- two or three years into your sentence, you, you get a divorce. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I've, I get all that. I understand that, you know, you're dealing with your world and trying to figure out what that is. She's living in her world and life is life. Right. Um, how, how did you reconnect? Okay. So that was one of the most painful situations that a person can ever go through losing a part of you. Mm-hmm. That was a part of me that I lost. Your half. Right. Absolutely. And so, man, I stopped eating and I was depressed. I was sad. Didn't want to talk or deal with no one. That was horrible. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, communication was so important, writing letters. And see, we didn't have the email system then. Right. So we just had to write letters and you look forward to mail call. Right. You look forward to mail call. I might explain that to the people who are listening. So at some point, there was only mail call. You would get letters and you would write back and forth. Then right. there was a thing, uh, core, it was called core links on our side, true links on their side, but you could actually go to a little terminal and you would put your thumb on it and it would charge you out of your account five mm-hmm. cents a minute. So you had to learn how to type faster because you, <laughs> you couldn't just type slow because it was charging you. But it was a way to communicate in the outside world. It wasn't quite like email because it wasn't instant. I think it took an hour or two for that right. person to get it. So if you were really wanting to communicate with them, it wasn't instant. Um, right. But you're you're right. You you lost. I, I'm assuming what that felt like is you lost your connection to the outside world. And and see, I had that with my wife. And I always felt like I straddled the fence on that. I, whenever I communicated with her, whenever we had visits, I at least got to straddle that other side of the world. And then you get sucked back in when that visit's over or that communication's right. over. But I can't imagine in your world when that divorce happened, man, that had to be some tough, hard days. And prison's a hard place to have tough, hard days. Absolutely. It, it, it was terrible. But I got past it. It took a it took years yeah. to get over that. But I never got over her. Right. I got over the divorce. Yeah. And so I just think it's inspiring that you can say that I went down deep and I got over it and I got myself back up because you're not getting yourself back up and moving to uh, Florida or <laughs> not getting yourself back up and moving to a different neighbor. You're getting yourself back up and going to the same cell you go into every day. And as far as you know, even with the sentence reductions, you're still years in. Absolutely. And so when I ended up in Leavenworth, because we communicated a little after the divorce, okay. not much, but she still had a life out here. Right. And I still have my life in prison. Right. And so I didn't want to complicate her life. 
did you feel like you were did you feel like you were a burden as a complication or what tell me what, what's that what was the feeling in the beginning i felt like a burden okay because you needed so much done you need your wife your family to talk to your lawyer mm-hmm. to do this research to do this to do that plus they have their own life right that they have to deal with right so yeah in the beginning i felt that i was a burden and i don't like to be a burden to yeah. no one well nobody does i don't think but it's it feels different when you're in prison because you know that you're you feel helpless uh, you are, your manhood's somewhat taken away because you want to be the protector of the family. You want to be the protector of your wife and that's stripped of you. And that's something that you can't get off of. You, you feel like you're wearing it on your skin. And right. to me, that was always like, I'm not able to be the dad I want to be. I'm not able to be the husband I want to be. I'm just here. They stuck me in here. Right. I feel right. claustrophobic. Right. right. And so, yeah, so we got my wife and I, we got back together uh, it was 2014. Okay. I first talked to her, man, I'm telling you, it was, I didn't know what to say to her. Is this so, at the uh, visit or is this a phone call? The phone call. Okay. You talk first. All right. And so I don't know what to say to her <laughs> because we grew apart. Right. She's someone, the lady she was before I got arrested, she's a totally different lady. Did she and get so remarried? Did she ever get remarried? No. Okay. So she's not been remarried and you obviously haven't. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so the first conversation I said, Hey, I, how you doing? And I don't know what else to say. Right. I don't know what to say because I don't want to say the wrong thing. Right. You want to keep this off. real. You want to keep it right, going. Because I'm so messed up mentally right. from being in prison for so long. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, I don't even know how to talk to a woman now. Right. Cause I'm used to talking to these old dudes <laughs> for years. Yeah. And a lot of them were aggressive. A lot of them were passive. Yeah. And so I'm used to holding conversations with them. Right. Now I'm talking to her. I have to learn all of this stuff. So you set up, all a, so you set up a visit, man, I set up a visit. <laughs> I went to my counselor. She sent, I sent her a visit. I said, Hey, could you come see me? I'm, close to Kansas city, 45 minutes away. And so she said, yeah, that, that wouldn't be a problem. And I was so happy. So I sent her out a visiting form. She sent it back. I'm constantly stalking, uh, uh, who was a counselor? Uh, well, there was, uh, there was Goodwin, there was Swanson, there was, uh, all the case managers, the, the, there was the, the witchy woman, uh, Alexander. Right. Um, that might have been Alexander, but um, no. The case, the 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 counselor was Goodwin. Goodwin. That's why I was constantly stalking him every day. And Goodwin was a good man. You know, he was one of the. He was. You know, you had the good cop, bad cop. You had Goodwin, right. the good cop. Swanson was the horrible cop. Right. He was the, horrible. He was horrible. <laughs> and so uh, I was constantly sweating. Goodwin, did you get a uh, a visiting form for me from uh, from Kim and this and that? He said, yeah, I got it. He approved it. My goodness. So when he approved it, I told her she was approved. Her and my sister and her drove up. I just cried and cried and cried and I didn't know what to say. And I was like, man, cause I really see her. I can't imagine. In the flesh. After all those years. After all those years. It's been I a know decade. Yeah. It was rough. 
So how was the visit? Uh, how was the visit? Yeah, it, that was a visit. Yeah. It was so emotional. And so the more she came up, the more relaxed I got, the more I could talk, yeah. the more open I was. And yeah, it was, it was rough. And she started me, uh, this is funny, but it's true. Cause I was a vegetarian for years yeah. because the food was so horrible. <laughs> that food was slowly messing you up. Yeah. And so that was one of the reasons why I became a vegetarian. So when she came up, she's trying to decide what we wanted to eat. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't eating meat. And so she, I was like, she said, Jane, they have this, they have this. I said, well, she said, everything has pork on it. Everything is this or that. I said, do you eat pork? She said, yeah. I said, well, I eat pork too. <laughs> so that's when I started back Start getting back into the world. Yeah. Whatever she ate, that's what I ate. Okay. So um, for, in that time period, did you guys get remarried in prison after or out I of prison? Out. After yeah, you got I, out? Yeah, we remarried after I got out. Okay. Yeah, because we were still learning each other. And then, you know, I got a three-day furlough. Tell us about that. Wow, that, that furlough. So you know how you merging onto the highway? So, <laughs> I thought a car was getting ready to run into us. I said, Kim, oh, watch this car. Watch the car. It's coming towards us. She said, James, come down. The car is merging onto the highway. I thought the car was getting ready to run into us because that was the first time that I had been in a car. For over a decade. <laughs> two decades <laughs> yeah so and I was like, it was it was crazy james what yeah. was it like getting into a house you know wherever you went with her what, what was tell you got to tell me about this okay <laughs> so just... the food so i'm watching these commercials the burger king commercial you know they had like the the, the four for four yeah and i knew i was gonna get the three-day furlough and I told her what I wanted to eat. I said, listen, I want to stop by Burger King, get the four for four. <laughs> yeah. So I'm telling my, my friends that they said, James, are you serious? So you get ready to get out, man. You can eat whatever you want. To yeah. eat. You want to eat Burger King? Yeah. And that's what I had, Burger King. Well, you're way out of the vegetarian world with that. <laughs> way out of the vegetarian world. And don't you know that I was taking showers with my shower shoes yeah. on at home? I had that happen to me, James. Uh, <laughs> Julie came in and she said, what are you doing? And I didn't understand really what I was doing. I just, right. it was part of the, I didn't even think about it. And I realized that, wow, I've got a lot more work to do on thinking about what I'm doing. I'm <laughs> fine here at home. I don't need these damn shower shoes. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> I was still taking showers with my shower shoes on. Uh, it was, it was crazy. So, yes. so the, you walk in, I mean, the TVs are different too. I mean, yeah. everything's different. Everything is different. You, Everything was different. And so I had to, when I went first went to the mall and I saw how they were moving, man, I was so messed up. I just, I, I was messed up. Yeah. Well, mentally. so, I mean, let's, so you, you did the furlough, you come out of that, you think, oh my God, things have changed so much. I feel messed up. Did it scare you about getting back into the world because you were pretty close to the door at that time? Absolutely. A lot of fear set in. Mm-hmm. Share that with me, because I think that's it's common to not only prisoners, but people dealing with change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you, and you've been conditioned to be in this environment. Now you're in another environment. Man, it was a lot of transforming going on in, in my life. So you get the, you get the release date. Uh, you know you're going to get out. Mm -hmm. 
Did the time seem slower or faster? It slowed down. And really I was slow. so, I think my blood pressure went up so high. I was so stressed every single day. I was stressing. What were you most stressed? Here? What were you most stressed about, James? Getting out and being around people mm-hmm. and learning how to do things over. Mm-hmm. There was just so much that I was afraid of. Mm-hmm. Driving. Mm-hmm. Man, my wife had to teach me how to how things work with the car and I was messed up because mm-hmm. cars kind of turned into computers themselves anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I'm still adjusting. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's been what five, has it been five years, six, six years, six yeah. years. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long do you think once you were home that you felt like you could take a deep breath and say, oh, man, I don't, I'm not looking, I'm not, Looking over my shoulder, I feel like I kind of have things figured. I'm myself, James Borders, outside. It, it took some years because when I was at home by myself, I was afraid mm-hmm. because I had used to, I was used to being around people, right? Twenty four seven. I was used to being behind locked doors, right? And so now I have all this freedom, and I was afraid. Yeah, you know, that's a that's an interesting concept, too, because a lot of guys that that have been in prison, they talk about being lonely and you're surrounded by people all the time. But your loneliness is within yourself because you have all these people around you all the time and nobody's going anywhere. But you are lonely. Yeah, it's it's a weird phenomenon that prison's lonely. It is. Yeah, it is. And a lot of guys go back because they can't adjust to being on the streets. Right. Well, and, and, the, and the statistics are horrible that, you know, two thirds go back in three years, three fourths go back in five. Yeah. And of course I feel like there's, there's a, there's a little extra piece of that that causes people to go back. One is, is, you know, getting a job, you have to put that on the application that you're an ex felon. If you want to try to live somewhere, you got to put that on the application that you're an ex felon. If you're trying to get credit, you got to put that on the application. So yeah. All three of those things are so important about being back in society to be a, a real person. And it's, right. it's really, really tough, really tough. Yeah, and so it's easy to fall back to something that you're familiar with. And it happens a lot. Yeah, it, it does. Yeah. They, um, housing is just tough for you to get housing, yeah. uh, life insurance. Yeah. Uh, a lot is because you're an ex felon. Yeah. Ex Felon. Ex-felon, right. Yeah, and so many guys, you need a support system. But in prison, I remember, Brent, when I first went to prison, guys were getting, like, education. Right. Uh, this one guy told me he had, he had a, he got a nursing degree in prison. Mm-hmm. But they took all of that out because right. the, the public was complaining about those guys getting that, that free education where we have to pay for it. Right. So they took all of that stuff out. Yeah. All those things that could benefit somebody getting back into society and being a contributing individual. Right. It's a shame because uh, you've got nothing but time. If you can use that time to benefit, educate, whatever, so that you become uh, somebody that can be a contributing member of society. And that should be the, that should be the goal. Right. And I hope, I hope that there's some tweaks that are made somewhere in the system where I think there's, you know, 
in the last few years, it's been talked about more than it ever has been. We just haven't gotten there yet. Right. But um, there's some good people that need a chance and they need a second chance. And I, that's one of the things I want to talk to you about. I think it's really inspiring that you got out, got your feet under, you kept your faith, you stayed mm-hmm. determined, you got a raw deal, but now you're in a situation, you're a, you're a business owner. And I'm looking yes. at you right now with that cool t-shirt on with that cool I logo. Did. Tell me about this. So this Entwine is our company, Entwine Apparel, and it represents unity. It represents an unbreakable bond. We have two trees that are totally separate, totally different in everything that doing a process became one. And it's just like the husband and the wife. Mm-hmm. When you first meet, you're totally different totally different, but you go through a process of becoming one. And sometimes that process can be painful Mm -hmm. because you fussing and cussing because you're going through a process of becoming one. Right. And this is a lifelong process because you are constantly learning each other. Right. And, 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 and our brand is not just limited to marriage, but it's also limited to families to different races of people, mm-hmm. uh, communities, because we should be one and we shouldn't let superficial things keep us separated. James, that is such a good message for today in the days yeah. that we live. If we yeah. could all go by that, we'd be better off. Yeah, because we we all need each other. Yeah. We, 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 we all need each other for something. James, what haven't I asked you that I should have asked you on this podcast? Well, I, I, I wanted to talk about um, when I first came into the system, Yeah. when my family was sending me money or when other inmates' families were sending them money, you send it directly to the prison, mm-hmm. whether it be a check, a money order, cash, you send it straight to the prison. But like a few years into my bit or during my time, they created some kind of bank in Iowa called the lockbox. So your family had to send your money to that lockbox in Iowa. And what they do is tax your money, then put it on your account. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, I'm saying that is so horrible. That's not good. Because we used to complain to the IT lady about us not getting our money. Sometimes it would take weeks. But the longer it sit get, in that lockbox, the more they interest. can tax it, yeah. or the interest, yeah. and then they'll put it on your account. Yeah. I said, man, that's horrible. That's not good. But not this good. is nothing but a business. Right. That's right. And so that's about it. Well, I got to tell you, James, I'm proud of you, man. You have you. you have been through hell and back and, and, and have, have lived to talk about it. Um, yeah. And I'm so thankful that you're here to share your story. Um, I think that, uh, you know, for somebody who's been through what you've been through and you just being so cool about being so positive, man, I really like it. It's inspiration to me. Love it. Uh, thanks, man. I love it. And you know, there was another guy, he was from St. Louis who committed suicide in prison. He was my friend. Yeah. Yeah. He hung himself. He put a belt around his neck tied it around the basketball rim mm. and he was on a table. He kicked the table and he was hanging from the 
the basketball room in Greenville. Mm. He had 35 years. Well, I got to tell you, you didn't do that. No. I mean, and that was, you know, obviously those things can cross your mind in a dark day. And thank God you made the 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 effort to keep stepping forward, James. And um, I want to tell you, I'm proud of you, man. I and you. I think this uh, this clothing line that you got is is just really cool. I'm going to put it on my website. I just I think the logo and everything is really cool. Thank you. Thank you so much, James, for being with me today. Thank you for having me. Everybody, nightmare success, in and out. Thanks for being here.